Good morning, everyone. Uh, like Tim said, you're going to need your Bible. Open up. Luke chapter 19 is where we will be uh, today. Uh, if I haven't met you already, my name is David. I'm the Minister of Youth and Training here at the church. Uh, and we are going to jump into God's Word this morning. But before we do, let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, uh, you are a great God and a great King above all other gods. Uh, you are the King of glory, the one who is strong and mighty. The earth is yours and all that dwells therein. For you have made it and you have founded it. All things we know are created through you and for you. And so we call on you today as the one who is worthy to be praised. And yet we know that, Lord, uh, much like our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, we've rejected your good, righteous rule over us. Uh, we have set ourselves against you and your ways. We have dethroned you and throned ourselves. We have rebelled against your good and righteous rule. And this rebellion, Lord, we confess that it, it goes far deeper than just our actions. Our rebellion against you goes to our very heart that we love other things more than you, that we serve other things, that we live for other things, that we praise that which is not ultimately praiseworthy. Our hearts are set on the things that you have made rather than the one who made them. And we do not see you as deserving of the praise that you're due. So Lord, we ask that you would grant us a pardon according to your steadfast love. Uh, because of the righteous life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, would you forgive us of our sins? Would you wipe them away as far as the east is from the west? And Lord, we ask, Lord, that your kingdom would indeed come. It would come in our own lives. It would come in this world. We pray that your reign and rule would be acknowledged by all and even just as we come to your word uh, today, Lord, we ask you to work in our hearts. We, we long to be a church that lives for our king, that worships our king as we should. So today, just have our hearts uh, to overflow with the praises that you are due. That we would praise you for your mighty deeds, that we would praise you for your excellent greatness, and that everything that has breath would praise you. For you are great and greatly to be praised. We ask now that you would open our eyes, that you, we may behold wondrous things out of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's summertime, and summertime for most of us, many of us, uh, includes road trips. Uh, whether those are long uh, trips across the province or across the country or just, you know, uh, a little ways down to go camping, whatever it is, many of us go on road trips over the summer. And uh, one of the best things about road trips, kids, am I right, is when you get there, right? You're in this long road trip and when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? And then there's this great moment, you know, whether you, you round the corner, you come around the bend and suddenly the place you're going, you can see it. And you're like, yes, we're here. We finally made it. Now, you're not at the place yet, 
You still have a little ways to go, but you're basically, you're there. You can see it. And there's this joy. Yes, we finally made it. And the, the joy, it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of relative to how long you've been on this road trip, right? An hour road trip, you're excited that you're there. But if you go on a long road trip or you go on a, a plane ride or something, you go for eight, ten hours in this plane and the person next to you is like sleeping on your shoulder and you're cramped in this thing. And then finally, the plane touches down. And you're like, yes, we made it. You haven't made it quite yet. You still got to, you know, get to the gate before you can stand up and get off the plane. But you're there. You're essentially where you've been wanting to go, waiting for, for this long, extended period of time. Today in our text, uh, we get to a moment like that in the lives of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, For a long time, uh, Jesus has been on the road the series we've been in through Luke, we've called it The Road to Jerusalem. He's been headed towards Jerusalem. This is where he's been going. This is where he's been heading. And today, he gets there. Not quite. He's still outside the gates. But he's there. He, he, he's at the moment where ever, all the climactic events are going to take place inside the city. His death, his resurrection. And as he gets there, the crowds rejoice. They see this as the moment that they've been waiting for. Okay, Jesus is finally here. He's been headed towards Jerusalem, and now he's here. There's this joy, this praise that erupts for him. But it's not just his disciples. It's really the whole people of of Israel have been waiting hundreds of years for this moment. Even all of humanity waiting for the moment when Jesus would come and enter into Jerusalem to accomplish his mission. But why... Is it so important? Why is Jesus entering into Jerusalem so worthy of rejoicing, so worthy of of praise from all of these people? Well, the answer is because of what it tells us about who Jesus is. Because of what it tells us about who he is. We're going to read the passage together, and then I want us to point out uh, three uh, distinct things about Jesus that we see from this passage. So, Luke uh, chapter 19, starting at verse 28. uh, Please read along with me. And when he, it's Jesus, had said these things, the, the parable that we heard last Sunday, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering it you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if any man asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, 
the very stones would cry out. This is God's word. So like I said, this praise that erupts as Jesus enters in, uh, really the main point of this passage is that Jesus is the king. He's the king that they've been waiting for. But there are three distinct aspects that Luke highlights for us of Jesus' kingship that I want us to see. What does it mean that Jesus is the king? Uh, The first one, if you're taking notes, is this. Jesus is the king to whom all the earth belongs. Jesus is the king to whom all the earth belongs. Uh, Let me read again verse 29 to 34. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, and these cities, um, they were just outside Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, uh, big city, walled city, kind of built on a hill. There's a little valley that kind of goes down into the east. And then up from there, uh, there's this uh, mount, the Mount of Olives. And, And just over there, about two or three kilometers away, was the cities of Bethpage and Bethany. And Bethany was a a city Jesus had done a lot of ministry in and around. Uh, This is where Mary and Martha uh, lived, their sister, or their brother Lazarus. Um, He lived in that city. That's where Jesus would have raised him from the dead. Uh, So Jesus would have been well known in and around uh, these cities. And and they're just a a few kilometers from Jerusalem. So here he is, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent to the disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, probably one of those two villages, um, go into the villages uh, in front of you, on where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who went sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So here's the question that maybe is in your mind as you read this passage. I know it was in mine. Did Jesus just steal someone's donkey? <laughs> like, what, what just happened there? Like, what, what was going on? Did Jesus just send his disciples in to take something that wasn't his? Right, kids, are you allowed to do this? Are you allowed to just go into your, your brother or your sister's room and just take whatever you want because you decide you need it? Yes. <laughs> Tim, you got to work on that, okay? Yeah. No, you can't do that. But why can Jesus? Why, why can Jesus just go in and get his disciples to take, take this colt and use it for whatever he wants? Right? You've you got to imagine what the owners are, are thinking at this point. Right? The, it, it says there's owners. There's multiples of them that own this one colt, probably because they were relatively poor. They had banded together their money to buy this animal so they could work or they could move stuff around, get from place to place, whatever they needed. And, and here, all of a sudden, it's, it's tied outside your front door. You come out and there are these strangers, people you don't know, untying it, saying, oh yeah, the Lord needs it. It'd be like kind of you, you go and buy a, a new car or something like that. You got your car parked in your, your driveway and you walk out of your, driveway, out of your house one day and you look and there's these guys outside. They've, they've smashed the window of your car. They're inside the front seat hot wiring it. And you'd be like, what are you doing? And they're like, God needs it. And you're like, sure he does. Sure he does, right? Like, you, you, what are these guys thinking? So why is it okay for Jesus to do this? Well, it's okay for Jesus to do this because ultimately everything in the world belongs to Jesus. Everything is his. Jesus is actually showing us by this 
what kind of a king he is. He's a king over all creation. Uh, Look at how Psalm 24 uh, puts it. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Basically, it all belongs to God because God made it all. He made all the people. He made all the people who made the stuff. Everything belongs to God. Psalm 50 says this, for every beast of the field of the forest is mine. God speaking here, the, cat, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. So everything belongs to the king. And if everything belongs to the king, he can take and use it for whatever purposes he wants, whenever he wants. Because ultimately it doesn't belong to the people, it belongs to the king. It's all his. I think naturally this kind of rubs us the wrong way though. When, When we hear this, because we live in a very materialistic, individualistic society. Which kids, all that means is that we like our stuff and we like that it's ours. And we don't want to share. Right? We know this instinctively. As kids, we have our stuff and it's ours. And if someone tries to take it from us, we don't want them to. We don't want anybody else. We don't even want our parents to tell us what we can do with our toys. And then we grow up and we have bigger, more expensive toys. And we don't want other people to tell us what we're going to do with it. It's our stuff. We don't want the government to tell us. We don't want God to tell us what we can do with our stuff. We earned it. We bought it. We worked for it. It's ours. But that's not the Bible's view. That's not the Bible's view at all. The Bible's view is that everything belongs to God. And the things that we have, they're just on loan from him to use for his glory and his purposes. And he may at any time call those things in to use for his own specific purpose. You kind of imagine it like uh, a small business owner. Maybe they own a a print shop or something like that. And they've got this small uh, print shop. You know, they're printing banners, posters, signs, decals, whatever. They got this print shop. The owner goes, he buys all the printers, all the supplies, all the inks, everything. He gets it all set up. And then he hires a manager. And he says, okay, I bought all this stuff. You're in charge. I'm going to put you in charge of all this stuff. Use the print shop materials, the, the printers. Use it to make some money. Okay, so you, you begin to, if you're the manager, you begin to get some clients, begin doing some printing, all of that kind of stuff. Now, the owner says, you know what? I, I'm not going to be around very much. I've got other businesses to run. I've got other things going on. And it, as you begin to, you know, work uh, the print shop business up, things are going well. One day, the owner comes in. And he says, hey, I need you to stop what you're doing right now. We've got an important print job we need to do. There's a client that we need this done, and we need it done in the next hour. Can you, as a manager, just be like, nope, we're not doing it. I'm not, u- letting, I'm not letting you use the printers for that. No, no, no. They're not your printers. The owner's the guy who bought it. He's the one who hired you. He's the one who's paying your salary. He's the one who's made, given everything in this print shop to be used. And if he wants to come in and say, hey, we're going to use the printers for this right now, It's his prerogative. He can do that if he likes. In a similar way, God is king over everything. It all belongs to him. He gives it to us to use, to steward well, for his own purposes, for our own joy. And yet, there are times when God may say, you know what, there's a specific need. There's a specific thing I I need to use this for. And our response cannot be, well, 
I don't, I don't want to use it for that. That might not be beneficial for me. It's, it's not ours to say. It's, it's God's. You kind of see that with the owners here in this text. They've got this, this colt. They see people kind of trying to take it. But they, they end up giving the colt. We don't hear of like a fist fight where they had to like, disciples had to like wrestle it away. No, they, they seem to freely give it. And Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus borrowed it. He gave it back. But it's interesting, right? We don't know for sure why uh, these guys gave up the colt. But we do know one thing. When they heard that the Lord has need of it, they were willing to part with it. Maybe they knew Jesus. They heard of him from the surrounding town. When they hear the Lord has need of it, they're willing to part. Are we willing to part with the things we have because the Lord may have need of it? Like, do we see the things in our life that way? The possessions that we have. Are they, are they all things that if God needs them, we would happily give them away? Happily let them be used? Because that's how the early church saw their possessions. The early church, Jesus has just died, resurrected. There's a group of a couple thousand followers of Jesus living in Jerusalem. And one of the things that marked these early followers of Jesus was that they considered that the things that were theirs were not their own. Uh, look at how Luke, who wrote the, the book, book of Acts, look at how he describes it in Acts chapter 4. He says, Now the full number of those who believed, the Christians, were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. <clears throat> and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So this isn't some kind of like forced communism where someone comes and takes all your stuff and redistributes it. This is voluntary generosity. Here's these people. They've, they've got all the stuff. They've got lands. They've got houses. They've got all the stuff. And they say, well, there's people who need it. The Lord has need of it to, to build up his church, to supply the needs of the other Christians. Well, then, of course. Of course, I'm happy to give it. I'll sell my house. I'll sell my land. Because the Lord has need of it. It's not mine to begin with. This is at least one of the things that it means when we confess that Jesus is our king. If we say Jesus is our king, we mean Jesus is king over everything. He's king over us and everything he's given us. Which means that everything we have is actually at his disposal. To use for his purposes, not just our own. means our money belongs to the king. It doesn't belong to us. God can use our money and has the right to take and say, you know what? I have need of your money here. This other person in the church has need. Can you supply their need? It means the time that he's given us. We've all been given time, however much that is here on this earth. He's, he's given us time to, to steward well, to use for him. And perhaps the Lord has specific need of how we would spend that time. 
how we would spend the gifts, the talents that he's given us, the abilities. Some people, maybe what the Lord needs, I don't know what he needs in your specific life, but maybe what he needs is he just, the Lord needs you to spend time with your family and just begin discipling your kids, loving them, caring for them. Maybe he needs you to begin discipling other people in the church, to caring for them, going out for coffee. Maybe he needs you to start serving in the church. Maybe there's a need in the church that you have gifts that you can actually contribute and build up the church. And there's a need that you can supply. The question is, do we see Jesus as that king? The king who everything we have, our stuff, our talents, our money, it's all his. And if he needs it, wherever you need. Jesus is the king to whom all the earth belongs. The second thing that we see about the king is that Jesus is the king who deserves praise. Jesus is the king who deserves a praise. When Jesus goes and he uh, gets this donkey uh, from the, the village, he's saying something very specific. He's making a very specific point about who he is. When King David lived hundreds of years ago, God made him a promise. A promise that one of his descendants would sit on the throne. This is what God says to, to King David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's this offspring of David that's going to come, that's going to establish this kingdom forever. But what's interesting is that David's son, Solomon, who became king afterwards, when David wants to anoint him as king, when David is close to death, David tells kind of the prophets and the priests at that time, he tells them, go and get Solomon and get him to ride on a mule. And we'll ride out of the city into that valley down right between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. Ride into that valley, anoint him king, and then bring him back up into the city as king. Uh, look at what David says in 1 Kings chapter 1. And the king said to them, uh, the, the prophets and, and priests, he said, uh, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, this royal animal, and bring him down into Gihon, this area right outside Jerusalem. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over all Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. And then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. And so the descendant of David, Solomon, brought into the city on a mule to ascend the throne and take his rightful place as king. When Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives, into that valley and begins to ascend back up into Jerusalem, he is saying, I'm the king you've been waiting for. I, I'm the king. And, and the people recognize this. In, in the other gospel accounts, uh, they, they acknowledge him. They say, this is the kingdom of our father David. You know, Hosanna to the son of David. They see Jesus is this king of David, this Messiah figure, the one we've been waiting for. He's here. He, when he goes on, on the donkey, he's claiming to be the king. A king that deserves praise. And, and the people begin responding and treating him as such. 
right? We see that them starting to throw down their cloaks on the ground. This was the royal treatment. This was like the, the red carpet of the day, right? Putting down their cloaks as the donkey walks across for kilometers as he goes. People begin to rejoice and praise him. Uh, look at verse 37 and 38. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they begin to praise him for two things. They praise him first for the things that he's done. It says they praise him for his, the mighty works that they had seen. Uh, probably referring to the miracles that Jesus has done along the way. They've seen Jesus heal people, uh, lame, walk, Lazarus, even been raised from the dead. John's gospel tells us that people came out of the city just excited to see, oh, is this Jesus, the one who raised Lazarus? So they've got a whole crowd of people praising Jesus for all the things they've done. Which, of course, is great. They praise him that he's done these amazing things. But I think they're also praising him because they realize what kind of king he is. Jesus is a king who cares deeply about his people. He, he's not just a king who's interested in gaining more territory, more land, expanding his empire. He's not just a king interested in accumulating wealth or power. He's a king who cares deeply for people. People who are hurting, people who are broken, people who need compassion. That's the kind of king that Jesus comes as. So they praise him. They praise him for these mighty works that he's done. They see him as that king. But the other thing they praise him for is what he's going to do. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That last phrase, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke means for it to kind of ring some alarm bells for us. To, to remind us of something he's told us earlier. Something that sounds very similar to that. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of the gospel of Luke, when Jesus is born, there's angels that come to the shepherds in the field. And when the angels come, what do they say? They say, glory in the highest, peace on earth. The angels say peace on earth, the crowd say peace in heaven, but both say glory in the highest. There, there is both peace on earth and peace in heaven. There, there is this peace that is going to come between God and humanity. And the people perhaps don't fully realize or know how that is going to come about or what exactly that's going to look like with Jesus' death and resurrection, but they know this is the one who's going to bring that peace. And it was a peace that's needed because Although God is king, he's king over everything, all is under his command, all of us, humanity, have rebelled against that king. We've committed treason. We've said, I don't want you to be king over my life. Not just as a race, but as individuals. When we think about who is in charge of my life, the answer is usually me. I'm, I'm the king. I, I, I do what I want. I want to be the one in charge. I want to be the one ruling my life, deciding where my life goes and what I do. I live, for me, I put the crown on my own head. And so that fullness of earth, 
that God owns and is under includes us. We are to live for him. We are to glorify him. We are to honor him and we don't. And the king could come and rightly judge us for that. If you read through the Old Testament and you read uh, through First and Second Kings, you, you read of these uh, kings who come to the throne, king after king after king. One thing you notice is that often when the kings come to the throne, one of the first things that they do is they kill all who oppose them. If there were advisors or other people around who uh, uh, opposed them coming to the throne, they're usually killed. Uh, other royal descendants who might be a threat to the throne, killed. All those who opposed their rightful reign, gone. But not King Jesus. When Jesus comes to the throne, the first thing he does is not destroy all who opposed him. When he comes to the, take the throne, he comes and he dies for those who opposed him. He sacrifices himself for those who were his enemies. He comes and he brings peace with God by taking all of the punishment we deserve from God on himself on the cross. All of it taken so that if we believe and trust in him, those sins forgiven, wiped out, and we have that peace with God, that is why they're praising him. That's why he deserves praise because he's brought the greatest peace that we need. It's here. It's coming. The peace in heaven with God. Not only is Jesus the true king, he's a good king. He's a merciful king. He's a gracious king. A king who dies for his people. The question is, do we give him the praise that he deserves? Do we praise him as our king? I, I know we praise him as a savior. That's right. But do we praise him as the savior king? It's not just that Jesus came and died. He, it's the one that he deserved all worship, all praise, all glory, all honor. And he died. And he sacrificed. And now he invites those who are rebelling against his kingdom to come and be citizens. To come and live under his kingdom and his good and righteous rule. So Jesus is the king who deserves praise the question is, do we praise him? Or we give lots of praise to other things. Right? We, we feel in our hearts, we, we talk about how good things are. We even just feel, man, like this food, amazing. You know, th this new clothing, amazing. This new technology, amazing. We, we talk about how great and awesome all these other things in our life are. Do we give praise to the one who's actually praiseworthy to the, to the king who deserves it most. Jesus is a king who deserves praise. The last thing we see though in our text is that Jesus is the king whose praise cannot be silenced. Jesus is the king whose praise cannot be silenced. Uh, we see in the text that there are some people who don't think Jesus deserves this praise. Uh, we see the Pharisees in the crowd in verses 38 and 30, uh, 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
He answered, if I, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so you, these Pharisees, you, you can kind of imagine them seeing Jesus, and they know Jesus is kind of popular, and they're like, Jesus, okay, we get it. It's great. You've got a lot of followers. You've got a big crowd. People really like you, Jesus. But they're calling you king now. Like, don't you think this has gone a bit too far? Right? They call him teacher, rabbi. They're trying to remind him of his place. Uh, teacher, don't you think you should stop these people from calling you the king? Worshiping you as some king? Haven't things gone too far, Jesus? Don't let this go to your head. Like, don't let all the crowds rile you up. No, no, no. You need to tell them to stop. This is too far. But Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples. He, he embraces it. He says, essentially, this praise is right. It's fitting for me. In fact, he, he doubles down on it. He says, if, if the disciples were silent, it wouldn't solve your problem, Pharisees, because the praises would still be there. He says, the stones would cry out. This idea that, that nothing can actually stop the praise that Jesus deserves. It's kind of a hard thing to get our head around of what that means. I tried to think of an example, and there wasn't one that really fit, but here's my, my best take at it. It's kind of like in, um, in sports, let's say uh, hockey. You've got some player who does an amazing uh, goal. They've just got the, you know, passing play, whatever, dekes out the goalie. It's just like one of those, not just like top 10 of the week plays, it's like this was like the top play of the year. It's just an incredible feat of athleticism. You, 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 the fans of this guy are just going nuts. Everybody's talking about it online. Everybody's praising. It's like, this is one of the greatest plays of all time. Everybody's excited. If those fans of that team were silenced, they weren't allowed to praise him for that goal, all of the rest of the fans, of real hockey fans, they're still going to praise it. Because they're going to say, you know what, I hate that team. I hate that player. But you know what? That was a good play. Like, that was really nice. There was something good about it. it it's that there, there is something so praiseworthy about this moment. Everything kind of just has to praise it. Right? And it's, it's different with Jesus, but kind of similar. That, that there is just something about this moment. About the king of heaven coming down and about to take his kingdom Something has to praise it. It's inherently praiseworthy. It is such an important moment in human history. There needs to be that praise. It's what we've been waiting for. What we've been waiting all of human history for. And it's finally here. Not quite yet. But almost. It's here. Nothing can stop the praise that is due King Jesus. Paul writes about this in, in Philippians 2. That though there are some who would reject Jesus now, there will come a day when, when everyone will acknowledge Jesus as king. He says, talking about Jesus and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how Jesus takes his throne through the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There will come a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, this is the king. Right? This event, this Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, uh, this is in some ways meant to foreshadow to the, the real coming of Jesus. He comes now as a king to die for his people, but he will come again as a king to judge. He will come not on a, a donkey, but on a horse. He will come not with a crowd of disciples, but with the armies of heaven. He will come to make things right and to establish his kingdom forever. And at that time, everyone will see him as he is and acknowledge him as king. But until that point, uh, we live in this time where people will reject Jesus. They will reject him as king. Uh, and like the Pharisees, people will not only reject Jesus, but they will not want others to praise him as king either. Many of us know this. We feel that people around us rejecting Jesus as king. We, we see perhaps even in our own lives how we often reject Jesus as king. And here's the wonderfully encouraging thing. The praises of King Jesus cannot be silenced. The praises of Jesus cannot be silenced. No matter what happens, there will come a day when everything will praise him Jesus is going to win. The gates of heaven or hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus is going to win and all creation will praise him. We'll see him as he is. This whole world was made through Jesus and for Jesus. It was made to worship him and to glorify him and to praise him. And one day, it will. Look at what John writes in Revelation chapter 5. As he looks forward to what will be when Jesus comes, he says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. King Jesus' praises cannot be silenced. Something has to praise him and eventually it will. So for us who know him, who know him to be our king, one day we will praise him for all of eternity. But until that point, let's keep praising him. Let's keep worshiping him as he is, as our king, as our savior, as our Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you that through Jesus Christ, we who were enemies have been made friends. We who were rebels have made, been made soldiers in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful and inexpressible gift. May we praise you always as our king forever. Amen.